Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dwyer, and this is a history of epidemics in Ireland. Recently, when I was talking to my cousin Martin, who has researched our family history, he mentioned to me that my great-great-grandmother, Catherine Murphy, lost her sister and her daughter within two days of each other in February 1919 from the flu pandemic of the time. This was a stark reminder that epidemics have always been with us and affected our lives in the most personal of ways. They are in many ways part of human history, part of all our families, if we go back far enough. Since the outbreak of COVID-19, I've had lots of requests to do an episode on the history of epidemics. So for this episode, I caught up with the historian John Dorney, who recently published an article on the history of epidemics in Ireland. You can find John's article, Epidemics in Ireland, and also his great podcast, The Irish History Show, at theirishstory.com. That's theirishstory.com. I'm going to post links to that in the show notes below this episode. But one last time, the address is theirishstory.com. Finally, before I start, I hope you're all doing okay wherever you're listening to this. There's no doubt that these are very strange and can be very trying times, but they will pass. To start our conversation, I began by asking John how disease, epidemics and pandemics have always been with us and how they're part of our history. Epidemics are something that people have always had to deal with in human history. And of course, for most of human history, people had no control whatsoever over it. There was no vaccine, of course. Um, There was no treatment for most diseases, really uh, effective treatment until the 19th century, the later part of the 19th century. People generally conceptualized it as, you know, the wrath of God, the will of God and so on. Um, Often people thought of it as a punishment. Like, for example, you'll know Finn, you've written a whole book about the, the Black Death. I mean, having said that, they always took practical steps as well. For example, every town uh, usually had a watchman to look for signs of sickness coming into the town. If plague did break out, uh, they made effort to isolate the people who uh, were sick and to uh, they made measures to bury the dead outside of the town walls and so on like that. So it was something people certainly had to deal with throughout human history, yes. I was keen to get a sense of how common they were in the past. John was able to give us this great case study from the 16th century in Ireland, which gives us a sense of how prevalent they were in previous centuries. Plague 
then this is just the bubonic plague, so not counting, uh, you know, big killers like typhus and dysentery and so on. But the bubonic plague broke out six times in, in 16th century Ireland. Um, it was very often accompanied by war, um, which, which is, is common experience throughout Europe, because war um, brings in a big number of people uh, into different areas of the country. Also, um, in the 16th century, given that Ireland was being uh, reconquered, basically, by the Elizabethan English state, uh, brought in a lot of people from England, plague often accompanied uh, famine and war. And this made its impact even worse. But, but even outside of that, there was six outbreaks of plague throughout the century. And w- one of them killed about 3,000 people in Dublin. And Dublin's population was about 8,000 maybe at the time. So, yeah, certainly it was uh, epidemic disease. Plague was a big risk, even in the 16th century. Next, our conversation turned to the 19th century. This is a very important time, not only because the modern world is starting to emerge, but also because records have improved. And also, healthcare, while it's still woeful, as you're about to hear, was starting to improve. In the 19th century, the biggest killers were um, diseases like typhus. Uh, typhus is a disease that's actually spread by fleas. Um, and it's believed that you get infected actually by scratching the flea bites and, you know, it gets into your bloodstream. And, you know, the symptoms are, are pretty horrible. You know, it's he- headaches, um, rash, uh, you know, bleeding in some cases, you know, from, from the orifices. Typhoid is a totally different disease, but the symptoms are similar. So the, hence the, the similar names, but, but confusingly, they're not the same at all. So typhus, as I said, is from fleas. Typhoid is from tainted water. Um, cholera uh, was imported, we think, uh, from via India, from the British Empire. Uh, you know, so it would have been a great flow of soldiers and administrators um, coming through Ireland from British India, being rotated. It was arrived in Ireland in the eight, early 19th century, but that also was... Um, is picked up from uh, uh, t- drinking dirty water, and dysentery. And dysentery again, it, once again, is from from uh, uh, dirty water. Uh, and dysentery, you know, it results in diarrhea, it results in bleeding again. But in terms of uh, the big epidemics, so you know, a lot of these, and also we should mention, like things like tuberculosis were were endemic, so they were killing a lot of people all the time. Smallpox similarly flared up every now and again. But in terms of the major epidemics, the big killers, the first one was in eighteen sixteen to seventeen. And that killed uh, about 65,000 people and, and infected 1.5 million. So that, that's a pretty huge epidemic. Now, if you think about, again, the way typhus is actually spread, how it's spread through fleas, you're looking at people uh, who were poor, who um, don't have the facility to, to wash themselves that often. And this is mainly the rural poor. So that's, that's predominantly who it kills. In a kind of a, an echo of what we have now, uh, the authorities called for a kind of social distancing. For example, they blamed wakes for the people who had died for the spread of typhus. But even in 1816 to 17, modern germ theory, that's, you know, that diseases are spread by microorganisms wasn't very well understood. It was still thought that they were caused by uh, miasmas, vapors. Um, so one of the advice uh, that was given by public health authorities in 1816 to 17 was you know, to keep the windows open of, of your cabin. The next great epidemic was about 15 years later in the 1830s, and this was cholera. Um, about 15,000 people were carried off by cholera in the 1830s. One anecdote about that, uh, Bram Stoker, the author of Dracula, is thought to have witnessed um, the epidemic in Sligo Town, where it carried off uh, several thousand people. And he saw people bleeding from the mouth, which was one of the symptoms of cholera. And he saw also that um, some people would be buried. People thought that they were dead and they were not actually dead. And some of them would rise up out of their graves. And, and this is this is thought where he, he got the inspiration for, for Dracula, the famous story. The third great epidemic, I would say, of the uh, first half of the 19th century was really in the Great Famine. 
So we think, obviously, of people dying in the Great Famine of, of hunger and malnutrition. And of course, that's true. But according to Carmichael Grotta, the historian of the famine, at least 400,000 of the famine victims were victims of fever, predominantly typhus. And as he writes, and uh, Lawrence Geary writes this as well, it's not actually caused and not really contributed to by malnutrition typhus. What it is, is all these destitute people crowding into towns, looking for uh, aid, crowding into workhouses, uh, crowding into hospitals, such as they were. These people are are a perfect vector for typhus. They're not washed. There's fleas going from one person to the other. Uh, And yeah, about 400,000 people died during the famine of what was called as famine fever, which we think was was predominantly typhus. That's as well as things like dysentery, which are are much more associated with malnutrition. And just to give you an idea, uh, Finn, like, Fever hospitals, hundreds of fever hospitals have to be opened where we don't associate Dublin with the famine, but what Dublin saw was thousands and tens of thousands really of destitute people arriving and setting up shanty towns around the city. And, and this you know, caused a great outbreak of fever in Dublin. And Cork Street Fever Hospital in one month alone, March 1847, admitted 14,000 people uh, with the fever. And they had to set up tents and sheds outside to accommodate them all. And the mortality was was very, very high. The late 19th century and the early 20th century were a crossroads of sorts in terms of medical treatments. And John next explained that while medical understanding was still rudimentary, modern medicine was starting to emerge. The germ theory, which is now obviously the orthodoxy, the correct orthodoxy, which is that microorganisms pass disease and they're spread by various vectors, whether it be from person to person, like in the case of of COVID-19, of course, but also in the case of things like smallpox. Uh, influenza, or whether they're passed to things like fleas and rats and so on like that. Now, that the germ theory became the predominant theory in the 19th century, but I was surprised to discover that even as late as the 1890s in some places, there were still, some doctors were still defending the miasma theory, which is that, you know, diseases kind of hung in the air somehow. Um, having said that, basically, the 19th century, the later 19th century, is a time of great progress. Um, there's much greater understanding of hygiene, um, that, you know, disease is... is uh, disease can be kept at bay by, by things like washing, by boiling water, by using soap in places like hospitals. And you can look, for example, at the Crimean War, the famous case of, of Florence Nightingale, where you know the British Army had massive losses through uh, disease in the hospitals of the Crimean War. And Florence Nightingale, not through pharmaceutical intervention, because that wasn't around, but just through good hygiene, managed to massively bring that down. And, and thereafter, like, if this is progress, I don't know, but in the later 19th century, you started seeing wars where more soldiers were killed of combat than killed of disease. So, you know, that's an indication. But for the average person in Ireland, there's certainly a number of, of areas of progress. So in the early 19th century, they opened workhouses, poor law unions. Now, the poor law unions were for the destitute. They were a form of, of social welfare, but they were also a form of health care. Um, they opened the dispensary doctor, which was um, from the 1850s onwards attached to the poor law union. And what this meant was the poor law union was the ratepayers of the district had to support the workhouse and the dispensary, uh, which gave more or less free medical aid to people who couldn't pay for private medical aid. Um, if you were better off, you could go to a hospital, which was generally run by a charitable foundation or a religious order. But probably for the majority of, of Irish population, um, the dispensary was the most common means of healthcare. The dispensary doctor, funded, as I said, by the Poor Law Union, he had a kind of a dispensary, which is really a clinic in modern terms, which people could visit. You have to get a ticket from the Poor Law Union. It appears to have been a lot of corruption there to, who got a ticket and who didn't. But generally, the dispensary doctor travelled to rural area, often on horseback or on foot, and visited the people in their homes. So healthcare does improve. The understanding of hygiene improves. And probably the most important thing, Finn, is that uh, vaccination starts to come in. So 
1853 in England and Wales, a uh, law was brought in say, uh, bringing in mandatory vaccination for smallpox. And in 1863, this was uh, extended to Ireland and there was a major vaccination program. And from the 1860s to the 1890s, they managed to more or less eliminate smallpox in Ireland. Now, there was an outbreak after that. There was an outbreak in 1903 in Dublin where you know hygiene and sanitation remained really bad. But they do start to see great successes in the 19th century, the later 19th century, because as we said, hygiene improved. This drastically brought down uh, deaths from things like typhus and dysentery and uh, cholera. Um, for example, Dublin uh, got its first piped water in the 1860s. It also developed a system of sanitation and sewerage, and this is true also of other Irish cities. Uh, and vaccination started to be significant factor. So all of these things improved public health in the later 19th century. This brought us on to the most famous pandemic, one that is frequently referenced in the news today, the one that killed my great-great-grandmother's sister and daughter, the 1918 pandemic. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So the 1918 flu is thought now to have originated in military camps in France in 1916-17, and it's thought to have passed from poultry to humans. So you know, this is obviously a familiar tale right now. Um, the thinking then is that uh, it passed through the military camps into various countries. There was a major outbreak in, in the military camp in Kansas in the United States, so America joined the First World War in 1917. It seems now from the latest research that um, there was actually brought from by American advisors back to Kansas and then back to France again by the Americans. But however it was spread, um, it spread like wildfire. It's thought to have killed about 50 million people worldwide. Now, interestingly, because one of the kind of common cliches about this is that the Spanish flu killed far more people than the First World War. It did actually, but not in Europe, which is obviously the main theater of the First World War. So it killed about 2 million people in Europe, but it, most of its, its victims were actually in, in the developing world, as we call it now. There was three main waves of the uh, Spanish flu, H1N1. There was one in March of 1918, which was not that serious. It was more like a normal flu. Um, and there was much more virulent wave in in the autumn of 1918 it hit Ireland for example in in October of that year then there was another wave in about that that wave the October wave lasted about a month and then there was another wave in January to February 1919 in, in Ireland at least in Ireland itself um most likely it arrived with um British troops back from the front or you know Irish people in the British army but you know people 
from the war fronts in France where, where the disease was rampant or from the camps in France. It arrived, the, the second wave really arrived in, in October. Um, and it, it's thought to have infected about 800,000 people, which is about 20% of the um, all Ireland's population at the time. And it's thought to have killed about 23,000. So those are Ida Millen's figures. Ida Millen has a book on this recently. Some of those deaths were put down at the time as deaths from pneumonia, which is, you know, it, pneumonia was a very common secondary infection from the flu. In about, inside about four months in Ireland, it killed about 23,000 people, which is a huge number. But the only thing I would say that's different from now, and it, it, it can maybe shape our understanding of it, is the death rates in Ireland, even in, in 1918, when, as I said, they'd improved a lot from the 19th century, were double what they are now. So nowadays, about 30,000 people die in Ireland every year when the population is nearly 5 million. This is of the Republic, to be fair. At the time, the All-Ireland population was 4 million and 70,000 died. So it was still a, a society where death was much, premature death was much, much more common. So it, it might have lessened a little bit the social impact of the 1918 flu. It still had a massive impact. So one difference between the Spanish flu and COVID-19 is that whereas COVID-19 generally kills people who are old or who are otherwise sick, generally, of course, not always, the Spanish flu disproportionately killed young and healthy people. Now, they're not exactly sure why this was. It may have been older people had some sort of immunity due to a previous outbreak. Um, or it may have been that it triggered such a strong immune response that your own immune system killed you. But certainly, you know, one interesting source for this is the Bureau of Military History, which is, you know, a record of the War of Independence and so on by participants. And it turns out that loads of them talk about the Spanish flu, but loads of them talk about their friends um, were struck down by this. They were just walking down the street and all of a sudden they would turn blue or black and keel over and die. So the, the Spanish flu was a very sudden killer. It hit around the time of the armistice. And, and one, for example, one account from County Tipperary from a man called Seamus uh, Babington, who was a volunteer and Sinn Féin activist, said that the people who uh, were pro-war, who had relatives in the British Army and so on, what they called the separation women, they all came out to celebrate the armistice. And he said they all gathered around. And this is the height of the epidemic. And they were all struck down. He said it was it was useful for us kind of thing. It, it, it's what he says. Although he also contracted the flu himself. Um, a lot of people were in prison at the time. They'd been imprisoned either in the conscription crisis of uh, March, April, 1918, and in the so-called German plot when there was a roundup of, of um, separatist activists in Ireland. There was a lot of them in Belfast jail at the time. A lot of them got the flu. Um, Ernest Blyde, for example, who was in there, said that they passed around the brandy to try to avoid the flu, avoid deaths from the flu because the authorities didn't want you know martyrs. But two, um, two Sinn Féin activists died in prison, including one TD, uh, Pierce McCann. But it is rural uh, and urban. Society is very hard. The highest numbers of deaths were in urban areas, Dublin, Belfast, Cork, but also in rural areas such as Kildare and Donegal, which had a high uh, proportion of military forces garrisoned there. So like the Curragh camp in, in, in Kildare, but also you know the naval stations up in Donegal. Uh, so it does seem to have been spread uh, by the military from from the First World War. And this, this also has lessons for today. So like Kathleen Lynn, who was um, a Republican activist again, but also a doctor, and she opened it. And, and her, her comrades in Coming the Man, very bravely in hindsight, opened a, a flu hospital in Dublin. But she said that the problem was that the troops were in quarantine coming back from the front. And in hindsight, that's absolutely right. You know, it's, it's, it's just like what successful countries are doing right now in limiting the spread of COVID-19. I asked John whether we're better prepared today than we were in the past. His answers to this question were fascinating. He starts by talking about measures adopted in the past to curb pandemics and how people 
related to soaring death rates in a different way than we do today? There are a lot of parallels. For example, you know, in, in the, the, the schools are closed for, for most of the, the worst part of the epidemic, which is October, November 1918. But a lot of things are not closed. Like they don't take us as blanket measures as we are today. Like in Dublin, the theatres and the cinemas weren't closed, although the, the head of health in Dublin, Charles Cameron, did uh, have them disinfected every night. Um, it turns out this didn't do any good because, you know, there were antibacterial disinfectants and they did nothing to the virus, but it did reduce deaths by bronchitis. But I suppose the point I'm making is that it was a society which had a much greater tolerance of death. So, you know, there wasn't a general shutdown. Um, 23,000 deaths was, was excess. It was more than they were used to, but, you know, premature death was much more common. In terms of, though, your, your question, Finn, um, that our society is better able to cope with it, medically speaking, that, that is true, and the medical care will be better. But, I mean, let's not lose sight of the, the bald fact. The thing about um, H1N1, the Spanish flu, but also COVID-19, is that it's a new disease that no one has any immunity to. So that means that no treatment that we have currently is any use against it. So really, the only strategy is um, suppression, you know, is, is, is what they're doing now. Unfortunately, you know what, the medical care that we have, is, the hygiene is much better, secondary infection will be much better, uh, people will be uh, ventilated much more easily than they could have been in 1918, if that was possible at all in 1918. But having said that, it, it remains the fact that there is currently no cure, no vaccine. So you're, you're left with the policy of suppression, which is as old as, you know, play quarantine in the Middle Ages. To finish, we talked a little bit about more recent pandemics in Irish history. Oddly, given these are in the not-too-distant past, I found it quite strange that they're almost entirely forgotten. I hadn't heard of some of these. Yeah, so one of the most dangerous ones was um, polio. For example, polio actually arrived in Ireland quite late, but polio is, is a very debilitating disease. So um causes respiratory failure, causes uh, blindness, uh, causes people to lose, lose the use of their limbs. Uh, but it arrived in, in 1941, and there were four epidemics, uh, 1947, 1950, 53 and 56. The last one was, was localised in Cork. I mean, and just to give you an idea, like so Cork, Cork's county teams were in both uh, football and hurting All-Ireland finals that year and both had to be postponed until the epidemic was over. And the Dublin papers were full of uh, outrage that these um, infected people from Cork would descend on Dublin and spread the, spread the infection there. People who got polio ha- had to be um, ventilated and what's known at the time was the iron lung, so the, the ancestor of today's ventilators. Um, but it's actually a story of progress because polio was basically eliminated by, by a vaccination program. So, you know, if you move through the 19th century through to the later part of the 20th century, it does, you know, give you some of the hope in, in human progress because there is great progress in, in eliminating these diseases. And it also highlights, you know, the, uh, let's say, misguidedness of, the, of these people who were into anti-vaccination, who were against vaccines, because vaccines have saved untold number of lives. But to continue, you know, answering your question, Finn, uh, tuberculosis was killing about four to five thousand people every year um, in, 20, in early 20th century Ireland. Uh, and that was brought under control in the 1940s and 50s, uh, famously the government of Noah Brown. But also, you know, it was we don't we t- tend to think of that period of Irish history, the 40s and 50s, as a time of great stagnation. But this was, was a great achievement. They properly funded san- sanatoriums, um, which isolated people with TB. They uh, used antibiotics. Testing. Uh, Dorothy Price, who was the uh, chairwoman of the National Consultative Council, Dr. Dorothy Price, said early, early accurate diagnosis followed by isolation. So, you know, very similar to the measures taken today. 
in countries like South Korea, which have controlled this this pandemic, these measures with antibiotics, with sanatoriums, uh, managed to eliminate TB. By the 60s and 70s, you know, the you, you, pandemics start to become, or epidemics rather, start to become very rare in, in Western European countries. Like there, there is two pandemics which which are largely forgotten in this part of the world: the Asian flu, so-called 1957, and the Hong Kong flu in 1968. And these did cause deaths in Western Europe, but you know nothing, nothing on the scale of, of what had gone before. So, yeah, up to say the 1950s, epidemics was a constant and, and real danger to, to public health in Ireland. But we haven't really experienced anything like that since the 1950s. I would say. I'd like to thank John for his time. Don't forget, you can check out John's research and his great podcast at theirishstory.com. That's the Irish Story. Until next time, Sloan. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.